Good morning, everyone. It's been, it's crazy to think it's been a year. Uh, it truly, I think I can speak on behalf of the staff and say it's so, it's so good to see you all. Um, gives us all the feels, as the kids say. Uh, and it's just, we've missed you, and it's good to be back. And uh, Dominic, thanks. You're going to become a Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> So, so does that mean, wait, 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 if you become a Seventh-day Adventist, does that mean uh, on my yearly report I have to fill out to Nazarene where they ask how many people have I helped to convert? I can now put down one I helped to convert into a Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. What? What? That's not good to report. Okay, so I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I, I just have to. I got to take a picture. Everyone say cheese. All right, that's so much fun. Um, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Um, I, yeah, there it is. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Gospel of Mark chapter 16. And and I said this in the first service, but I'm going to say it again because I've been waiting to eat for a year for this. Would you stand with me if you can for the reading of the gospel? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. This is the word of God, for the people of God, from the people of God. Thanks be to God. You'll have to ask those who were here during the first service, you may be seated by the way, you'll have to ask those who were here during the first uh, service if the second sermon is any better. We have little hope. Um, Thank you to Kristen, wherever she went, she uh, went home and made me an oat milk latte, and that's, that's all that was needed. I, uh, I've been longing, Dominic, by the way, you introduced Tanner many moons ago when we could all be in person to Dinosaur King. Do you want to know what Parker's favorite show is right now? Dinosaur King. Every day, the story Parker wants to watch when he wakes up, Dinosaur King, Dinosaur King, no Parker, no, di- yes, Dinosaur King, because Parker loves Dinosaur King. I've been hoping, uh, beyond hope, that my kids will get into some of the old, like, cartoons and shows and movies that I 
uh, grew up on, and so far it, they want nothing to do with it. They want the Jurassic World or Dinosaur King or something uh, along those lines. But, but there is one movie that Tanner has picked up a bit. How many remember the old Homeward Bound movies? Yeah. Tanner got super into that. So much so, he loved the story that he began to ask Kristen and I to become storytellers and to retell the story, which was cute the first two or three times. But when he began to ask five or six times in the same car ride for us to tell the Homeward Bound story, I realized that I... um, I did not want to be his favorite storyteller any longer. And so I quickly changed my storytelling from lots of energy, lots of details, you know, all the good stuff from that movie to the bare minimum, minimum inflection. Um, I wanted to clearly accomplish one thing. And the one thing I wanted to accomplish was to be a less entertaining storyteller than Kristen. So that whenever Tanner asked for a Homeward Bound story to be told, they would ask Mommy to tell the story, not me. I think I have accomplished that. I've been thinking this week as we come to Easter about this idea of telling stories. If you would have asked me eight years ago when I I first came here to be your pastor, and and by the way, what were you thinking when you uh, called me? I was so, so young and so naive. Don't say amen. But I've been thinking about, uh, if you had asked me four years ago what my favorite gospel uh, was, what my favorite gospel storyteller was, I clearly would have given the answer that all of us good Western evangelical Christians have been taught to give. John, right? If you get somebody who's interested in coming to the faith, what's the one place you tell them to go and start reading in the Bible? You tell them to go to John because... I don't know, it's spiritual or nerdy or I don't know. You just tell them that. You go read John. And then if I had to keep telling, okay, John's my favorite storyteller. What's my second? Probably would have gone with Matthew. Because in Matthew, you got the Sermon on the Mount. You got all that good stuff. You got the the Great Commission. And any good Christian will tell you that we got to do the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Hit them over the head. Tell them they're going to burn in hell and bring them to Jesus. Um, So that would have been my second. But then clearly third go with Luke because you need a good Christmas story because I need to open presents and so we got to have Luke so I can have the Christmas story but a distant fourth would have been Mark so essentially John would have been like the Christian storyteller for Homeward Bound and I would have been Mark the, the, the lame one something has been happening over the last couple of years especially this year as we uh, have in the lectionary gone through the gospel of Mark Mark is, Mark is quickly becoming my favorite gospel for many reasons, we don't have time for that today, um, but, but I want to point to a couple in this kind of Easter Good Friday narrative that we've been thinking about over the last couple days. First of all, if you were to line up uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and, and to look at their resurrection accounts, it's fascinating the ways there are divergent details or stories or um, uh, things included or not. It's fascinating to me that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, for instance, we actually don't see the resurrected Jesus anywhere, at least in the original account. In the original account, the story ends with them going to the tomb, and you have this young man, and he says, he's not here, he's risen. And, and, And Mark ends with them going away, and the women are afraid, and they don't tell anybody. And that's how the story ends. 
there's some nerdy uh, debate going on, and uh, uh, there's some nerdy debate going on about what's happening there. Some scholars say, yeah, that's exactly how Mark wanted it to end for discipleship purposes. He wants us to narrate ourselves inside that story and to, to ask, what will we do with this story? But there are others who want to say, no, that is, not, that is the dumbest ending ever. I almost said stupid, but Tanner would have heard on the live stream and say, daddy, we don't say stupid. That's the dumbest ending ever. Why would you end that? Mark clearly had another ending, and we probably lost it somewhere. It got burnt in a fire. Peter got angry and tore the scroll. Who knows? There are others then that just say, no, Sean, stop overthinking it. Clearly, there is an ending there. There's a little note that says this was added later, but that's just probably minutiae. Long and short of it, for nerdy people like me, is the gospel of Mark in its original, like in the originalist, in the originalist manuscript that we have, the oldest manuscripts we have, ends with verse 8. Without having seen the resurrected Jesus, and is this mic cut now? Yeah, it is. Okay. We've got to have some mic trouble. Sorry to those on the live stream. Uh, it ends with no resurrected Jesus and the witnesses leaving Afraid. But there's another detail that I think is fascinating. And some of you have heard, heard this before, but we're going to have fun with it again. When they arrive at the tomb, what do they find there? Other Gospels will tell us that they find an angel. But in Mark, what we find is not an angel. It says a young man. Now, I know for a lot of us, we just want to say, oh, Sean, you're just trying to pick at the text. It's clearly an angel. And, and we can sparse that out over fun coffee and conversation. But I, I just want to offer, Mark knew the Greek word for angel, and he clearly, in writing this gospel, chooses not to use that Greek word. He uses this Greek word that we translate young man. There is one other place in the entire gospel of Mark where we find this Greek word for young man. And I want to think with us about that other place and why it's there and why it's here and what that might mean for us on an Easter Sunday where we're finally back together. So turn with me now to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And I'm going to put on my broken glasses because this is really tough. Five-year-olds and two-year-olds, they break everything. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, because apparently the church has always been fascinated with arming ourselves. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Get this, verse 51. A young man 
wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I, I was we, we I, I forgot to thank everyone before I started the sermon, but I, let me pause here and thank so many people. Uh, I'll inevitably forget, but certainly the staff, um, Jay and Shay. What do you think about these lights, by the way? You should have seen Jay and Shay yesterday making that happen. Um, their mother was worried they were going to fall, but they didn't. Uh, thanks to Martha, who's coming and clean. Thanks to, I mean, Christian and Emily for spearheading the kind of garden start out there. Um, it's just so fun to see. Teddy and Michelle a few weeks ago came. Um, thanks to Mark for helping pull this off. Thanks, Ken Steve, for a year's worth of driving on Saturdays where I don't think you missed a Saturday and just delivering uh, worship supplies. Uh, Mark, I know you've jumped in a ton of Saturdays as well, and, and to my dad. Um, just thanks to everyone who helped to pull this uh, day off. Now, why did I stop to say thank you? I had to point to tie in with that, and I totally forgot. Oh, well. I guess, I, oh, that's right. Okay, so we were busy. And, and I finally got done kind of setting up the building last night about 11 o'clock, and I was like, it's time to kind of think through how to get from A to B on the sermon. And I knew I, knew I wanted to talk about this, this, this naked man in the text. And so I'm like, well, any good sermon, you need a visual that people can see in the background. And so I Googled Mark, naked man. Don't do that. I then Googled the gospel of Mark, naked man, and I found a picture I thought would be uh, fairly appropriate until I looked more clearly, and I'm like, nope, can't show that picture in church. Even the people on the live stream wouldn't appreciate that. Sylvia would be so mad at me. So we're just going to go with a generic Easter uh, photo. This text, where Mark apparently finds it uh, compelling enough to tell us this detail, when this Jesus who was the Christ is betrayed and arrested, everyone flees him, including this extra character who goes unnamed and leaves this garden place naked. Why on earth do we need to know that detail? John doesn't tell us about the naked dude. Matthew doesn't. Luke doesn't. Why does Mark, the earliest gospel writer, think it's important that we, when we know when Jesus is arrested, that we're told that one of the people around fled and wanted to go streaking. Well, probably didn't want to go streaking, but inevitably found himself streaking. A couple little of the nerdy details. This, this, this text here where it says about this young man is that second place where Mark uses that Greek word, young man. The only two places we get this word in all of Mark is in this arrest, you have this young man, and at the resurrection scene, you have the young man. I am absolutely convinced, and we'll talk about this as we go, that Mark is wanting to connect the dots between these two. So who is the young man? Some scholars want to say it's probably Mark. In fact, we had somebody, uh, one of the folks that came to the first service uh, seemed to, to think it was, it was probably Mark. That Mark, like if any good M. Night Shyamalan movie where M. Night Shyamalan puts himself in the story, right? It, that Mark is like just narrating himself uh, into the story. Uh, and if it, that's true, and I need to take it up with Mark because you've you got to find a better way to narrate yourself in the story. That's not how you want history to remember you. 
Some scholars I read this week, one guy speculated that maybe it was the rich, rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus or another rich person. There's some speculation. But, but there's this commentary I have down here by Ched Myers. I think it's called Binding. Yeah, Binding the Strong Man. And Ched Myers argues, and I am convinced, and I hope you will be convinced, that, that Mark is using this character that goes unnamed as a, a literary device to narrate each of us into the story. And so if Andy Tushar was here, I was going to point at Andy at this point right now and say, Andy, you are the naked man. I don't have my screen on, so hopefully in about 15 seconds when he hears that, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll make a joke, but I'll, I'll go back later. But I become increasingly convinced that what Mark is doing is narrating us who are disciples of Jesus, us who are folks who follow the pathway of this itinerant Jewish rabbi into the story. That as Chet Meyer says uh, about this scene, that this picture of this young man leaving the garden naked, and if you know anything about Jewish culture, to be naked is all sorts of tied up in shame. So that this young man who is leaving the garden naked and ashamed is a stand-in for all of us who attempt to follow Jesus, that proverbially we, yeah, that word, that we all find ourselves in the pathway of discipleship, in the pathway to follow this itinerant Jewish rabbi in the ways of the kingdom, we will inevitably find ourselves leaving gardens naked and ashamed. Thank Genesis. That Mark is wanting to connect the dots to an ancient story that begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And inevitably, we know how that poem ends. It ends with this Adam and this Eve leaving a garden naked and ashamed. And so we shouldn't be surprised that now, as this kingdom revolution has taken place, those who want to those who seek to enter into the kingdom now leave a garden naked and ashamed. So, so in many ways on Easter, the, the, the message here is, Jake, you are the naked man. We are, we are leaving a garden naked and ashamed. Which, by the way, as we think about the last year, Sometimes when we look at the discipleship walk of the body of Christ, especially in Western culture, doesn't it too often feel like we are leaving the garden naked and ashamed? Naked and ashamed in the areas of where we give our allegiance. Naked and ashamed in the areas of how we treat our neighbor, be it a legal neighbor or not. Shamed in the areas of how we participate in economy. Naked and ashamed in how we love God with our whole heart and the temptation to too often love ourselves first. Doesn't it just seem like when we look at the life of the church in the last year, the last 10 years, the last however many, the last human history, Time and time again, the church is leaving a garden, and we have failed to put a decent pair of clothes on. And as Ted Meyer says, we too often give ourselves to the discipleship demolition, where we are no longer following in the ways of the kingdom. 
And so on this Easter Sunday, we're reminded that, that as of Good Friday, we are all naked and ashamed. But Chet argues, and I, I am convinced that that is not the last picture we get. That again, Mark has narrated this in such a way that that same one, that, that young man, is the same one who is in the empty tomb. By the way, a nerdy, another nerdy thought, and I forgot this in the first one. I was so disappointed, Dad. I thought you would really like it. I'm going to butcher it. I'm not going to go as deep as I should because I'm too late, and we need to stop. And Lorenzo and Honey Girl, we've got to sing the melody. That joke never gets old. Oh, I'm going to say that next Easter. Honey Girl, this is where you roll your eyes. You've been doing that all week, so thank you. It's made me feel good. But it's interesting that, it, that there's another Greek word play on words here, that the, the linen, uh, whatever, and again, I don't have the Greek word written down, but whatever he leaves behind so that he is now naked, there is a second place that that Greek word comes up. And it is the exact, uh, the only other place in Mark where that comes up is when they go to get the cloth to bury Jesus in. So it's almost as if Mark is saying that our inability to follow Jesus well is what contributes to burying him. And so we shouldn't be surprised, though, that as the story narrates itself out, that resurrection happens, the mystery of resurrection happens. And Mark doesn't give us an appearance. Mark doesn't tell us how it happened. Mark doesn't solve it. Mark's not an apologist. Mark just tells us there's a mystery. But at the heart of this mystery is a young man, no longer naked, now fully clothed, participating in the proclamation of a mystery. He's not here. He's risen. The story of Easter reminds us in the church that our story is not a story where we will always, how I say it, we are not just proverbially called to live lives where forever and ever we're just going to be dumb sinners who always get it wrong. And, but grace, thanks be to God, whatever, we, you know, we get to go to heaven when we die. And I'm not dismissing the mystery of what is to come. But I think what Mark wants to do in the resurrection account is to say that for those people who want to enter into the pathway of this itinerant rabbi to be disciples of Jesus, that there's something about the life, death, and resurrection of this one who is the Christ that can move us beyond lives of simply fleeing gardens naked and ashamed, but can ultimately leave us sitting at the right hand of an empty tomb proclaiming the mystery of the kingdom. And so on this Easter, the invitation for us as the church is to repent for the ways in which we have contributed to the nakedness in our society, but to experience resurrection power that invites us to move beyond that, to be fully clothed, dressed in white. Again, I love the nerdiness of Mark. Mark, one of the things I'm finding is that Mark loves to play with attire. And so you look at John the Baptist, and he's really particular about John the Baptist's attire. He's particular about Jesus' attire at different points. He's particular about the leadership of the church's attire, especially when they tear their clothes. Um, he's particular about Jesus' attire on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so this scene of this young man who's dressed in white, that dressed in white attire is the same attire of Jesus that is Transfiguration. 
the picture I think Mark is giving us is the church, the call is to be Jesus. It's not just called to be saved so you can go to heaven when you die and then use that as an excuse to go uh, align with other things until then. The call is to be Jesus proclaiming the kingdom now. One last thing and then we'll, we'll melody away. What does that young man say? He says to the ladies, go to Galilee. Now, I have for my whole life read that as, okay, that means Jesus needed to go on a road trip. He needed to clear his head. I mean, crucifixion and, you know, descending into the place of the dead and, and resurrecting, that's rather hard. He needed a two-day vacation before he had to deal with Peter again. And so he's going on to Galilee, maybe do a little fishing. They'll catch up and they'll have a good time, a hearty laugh. It'll be good. That may be at least a part of what Mark is doing here. But I'm increasingly convinced that he's doing something else. If you go to Mark chapter 1, in verse 14, we get the first mention of Galilee. In verse 14, it reads like this. After John was put into prison by those in power, abuse of power, Jesus went into Galilee. It's almost as if this abuse of power triggered Jesus that now is the time. He went into Galilee, again, that's the first mention we have, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I'm convinced that when Mark, at the end of the gospel, or with this young man in the empty tomb says, go to Galilee, he may be saying, yeah, Jesus will be there and you can meet him there. But I'm convinced he's also saying, get back to your roots. Get back to the neighborhood. Get back to where you help to free people who were oppressed. Get back to where you help participate in a counter-narrative that reoriented the way the world fundamentally operates. Get back to blessing the poor and the widows and the orphan, the meek, Get back to turning the other cheek. Get back to where it started because we got a lot of good work to do, work that is called kingdom of God. And so may we as the body of Christ in West Seattle, in Burien, in White Center, in Renton, in the myriad of places that this space represents, may we repent of the ways we have contributed to the nakedness of the world. But may we, may we become present to the resurrection power that allows us not to continue to live there, but to move beyond there, pointing to a new alternative reality that is breaking in the world, not just someday, but right now. And if we don't know what that looks like, may we at least begin by going back to the roots, loving those who the world doesn't, caring for those who most need it. May we participate in this thing called the kingdom of God. Amen.